This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. And today, we pay special tribute to a legendary artist known for his iconic rock and punk poster designs. He created signature graphics for the likes of Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. In 1979, when punk rock arrives in Austin, he is there to meet it at the bus stop. In 1993, Rolling Stone dedicates a three-page article to him, declaring him the new rock poster genius. His revolutionary designs for collectible vinyl toys as the chief creative officer of Kid Robot is unparalleled. Frank Kozik passed on May 6, 2023, at the age of 61. The upcoming conversation with this extraordinary pop culture provocateur is from one year ago, and I thought it would be a nice nod to his legacy to give him the final word. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity, la 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 la. Hey, Frank. Hey, how you doing? You've had such a storied career in so many fields. One of the things that occurred to me that I saw from your early poster design to owning a record label to your toy design is vinyl. How much of a impact has vinyl had on your world and your creation? Vinyl is actually, it, it's more like China opening up to trade with the West in the last 25 years has made uh, a lot of things possible. But yeah, I guess I never really thought about the vinyl records. I know, you know, it's a good polymer, right? The molecules are long, it's it's malleable, so it can be anything you force it to be, I guess. So maybe with the vinyl, it's also free flowing, which I guess in a way could parallel what I do. Well, also in all of those things that you've done, there seems to be the human desire to collect your work in whatever medium it comes out in. What do you think that is that makes humans want to collect things? People have a need to uh, fend off the unknown. Human existence is all about avoiding the void. You know, the void The void is what makes you want to survive and live. So I think that people collect stuff for a lot of reasons. I think the, I mean, I'm a collector because I had a really unstable childhood and I was always organizing my surroundings so I could build my own reality, which I could control, like pretty basic thing. I'm also a collagist, right? I'm not like a natural artist. Like I was just good at rearranging things. I think it was an outgrowth of childhood play, that protective play. So, you know, everything I do is, the approach is always a collage approach. Yeah, so collecting. So collecting is about that. So collecting, number one, is about security, right? Number two is about hunting, which is another sort of like, and gathering, which is another set of human needs, right? We're hardwired to hunt and gather, okay? And to have excess for the winter. And it's also about specifically in smaller collecting circles, no matter what it is, it could be salt shakers. There's hierarchy, right? People 
need to have a hierarchy in groups. Uh, a group of collectors is a social hierarchy, and hence the better your collection, the more ascendant you are in the hierarchy and the more important you feel. So collecting actually addresses a large subset of human needs from the origins, right? We need to be safe in our community, have hierarchy, okay? We need to have abundance in order to survive hard times, and we need to go hunt and gather. We need to go see what's behind the bush. Is it something good that I can eat, right? So they're all primal instincts, but it's what our entire society is based on. So collecting is a personal way to build your own kingdom, show whatever, you know, it fits a lot of human needs. I, I think for some people, it even uh, replaces like emotional bonds with another person to a certain extent. Uh, I've seen people that are very, very, very emotionally attached to their collections. I myself have been a collector over the years, and usually you'll notice the different phases in what I do. It's in the different sort of themes or styles throughout time. It's always based on what I'm collecting currently, whether it be physically or mentally, whether I'm engaged in observing something repetitively like oh i get really interested in this kind of magazine or this kind of graphic or this kind of animal or whatever or you know there's no big interior message in any of my work really it's all a reflection of what i'm consuming and when i'm seeing people around me consume well that's fascinating for a couple of reasons i do i think collecting is among all of those things you said it also creates a great deal of comfort when you get a thing that you want or you have the prize but when you said that it's the things consume I think you're very aware of consumerism. You're actually creating collectibles based on desires or instinct. And, and very much what you said about being a collage artist, you're combining culture elements that you're combining with a new toy design. There's something really interesting about being a collagist and also having your finger on the pulse of where people's combination of your deep personal instinct and that commercialism that people desire. Yeah, I mean, my experience is kind of backwards. So I never, you know, when I was a kid, naturally, I, you know, you know, like to draw stuff and copied comics and all that sort of thing. And then I had the beginnings of my adult life, which certainly did not involve the arts in any way, in any way whatsoever. It's not like I grew up wanting to be an artist. I got to go to art school and I saw, you know, all this stuff. It's like I was part of a cultural scene. So I kind of landed in a really great place for punk rock in all of its uh, glory in the early 80s in Austin, which was a really vital community at that time for underground music and uh, activities. It was really important in the early years of that cultural scene, that social scene, to be a contributor, not to just be an observer. It was almost expected that, okay, you should have a band or you should do something, right, special, or you should have a really outsized personality or you should run a venue or whatever, okay? So my thing was I could kind of like draw these things and, and put together these designs. And I was doing it at first I with some friends, just like nonsensical street art. We would just do random things that looked punk rock to us or whatever, and we'd put them up, right? And eventually some local bands saw it. Hey, well, can you do a poster? Because back then, this was before there were even like the weekly newspapers, alternate newspapers. So the only way you could really promote stuff that was underground was word of mouth or by you know flyers on the street nobody had a budget to put an ad in the daily paper right there wasn't a radio show there was you either had to hear it from somebody or see it up on the window or on the light pole so i started started doing that locally in austin for local bands and then i started working at clubs 
you know, usually running the door, doing security, whatever. And then there was this really great guy in Austin that nobody ever gives credit to. There was this guy called Brad First, who was this interesting sort of guy that he wasn't really part of any scene, but he really liked having weird clubs. So he founded like three or four of the big successful clubs in Austin in the 80s. And he liked posters. He liked graphics. So he was actually willing to pay me like 25 bucks to do a nicer poster in two colors for a larger touring act he would book. So by doing that for him, well, you know, I was there for Sonic Youth's first tour and the Red Hot Chili Peppers' first tour and Ministry's first tour. And, you know, everybody's first tour came through Austin, played those small clubs. I had done the local posters. A lot of the bands liked the work. So then I started getting offers like, will you do our tour poster? Will you do the poster for New York? Will you? So slowly at the end of the 80s into the 90s, like I started doing poster work for outside the local area. At the same time, I got myself a production job at a t-shirt place that had a silkscreen press and all this stuff. I got real fascinated with, hey, it's pretty easy to do huge, colorful things on a silkscreen press, right? It's a lot cheaper than doing it offset back then. So I sort of put some money together and got a flat press and started doing like posters for local punk bands, but huge silkscreens. So this is like, you know, 1992, nobody was doing this kind of stuff with any regularity. So it kind of like, it really blew a lot of people's minds, right? And I really got into it. And it, that led to like a, an article in Rolling Stone and lots of shows in different big cities and doing stuff for overseas and doing bigger bands. And, and it was never a plan. It was just a thing that happened. And I saw an opportunity. It was way better getting paid to make posters and to like, you know, be all cement labor or driving a delivery truck and all the shit that I was doing for a living. And it just sort of grew, right? And then it did really well. Then I moved out to San Francisco on a whim one day. And, you know, and on the basis of that Rolling Stone article, I got a lot, a lot, a lot of large commercial jobs. Because it was the 90s, everybody wanted to make money off the grunge generation, so all the sneaker companies came along, all the beverage companies, all the snack food companies. So in the 90s, I got tons of work for like with like Nike and fucking Gatorade and Altoids and all these big companies because they wanted to sell products to the grunge generation, right? And I was the guy that was doing the posters for all these bands that became super famous. And I made a lot of money off that, and I used that to start a record label. Grunge also had a detrimental effect where a lot of bands, which I thought were really good, were not musically in vogue. So suddenly they couldn't, the Melvins couldn't get a record deal. Like, you know, really great bands couldn't get record deals. Or they would want to really produce their sounds to make them sound like a grunge band or whatever, right? So I started a label because I was friends with all these bands and working with them led to me making all this money. So I'm like, I want to pay back a little bit, right? So... I did a deal where like, hey man, your band is cool. We'll record whatever you want, sight unseen. I won't touch it. You give me the finished product. I'll release whatever you want. In return, I get to do like my fantasy album cover for you. And it was a formula that worked really well. I like all kinds of music. So out of that label, you know, we broke a couple of really big acts. Like, the, you know, I did like the last Kaya stuff and then Josh was at Loose Ends. And so we did these like Desert Sessions recordings, which turned into things of the Stone Age. The label was really rewarding and it was going well. But then in the early 2000s, there was a lot of disruption in the music distribution thing. Sony went belly up and they, they left 50 distributors is fucked and I was one of them. So I had to shut it all down because of the big, because Sony pulling out of the distribution business all, all of a sudden. It's like this long convoluted story. Also digital streaming was coming in. 
I was really against it. And everyone was like, no, it's wonderful. And it fucked everybody really bad because why buy a record, you know? I kind of like shut it down around 2002, right about the right time. That was Man Ruins Records, right? Yeah. We did like 250 releases. And I was doing everything else throughout that whole period and started going to Japan a lot. I, I got a patron over there and I was going over there doing weird art shit and jobs and hanging out. So right about the time I was like totally sick of the music business because it had been nearly 20 years, right? And, you know, this whole fracas with the label and it just it just sucked. I was tired of it. I was in Japan on a trip and I really, I, I started, I came across like one of the first vinyl designer toys. Um, saw it in this like weekly culture magazine. They do these weekly trend magazines over there, right? Where you see what's cool and hot. And it was like this thing in there. The people I was hanging out with knew the guy that had made it. I met him. Turned out he liked my posters. We collaborated on a toy. This is about like 1998. I did the first Labbit vinyl toy, the black one. It was successful in Japan. Nobody here cared. It was too early. So I went on to work with like Medicom. I did, you know, a, a, a bunch of toy stuff just in Japan. When the label went belly up, I made a big decision. Well, I'm sick of this. I want to like, I really like this toy thing. Let's see what works. And so I, so for about a year, nobody cared. I was bringing it over, trying to make it work. Everybody just hated it. But then Kid Robot hit. The toy phenomenon hit like 2004. And I was already there, as was Cause. We had already done toys. So we were able to immediately jump on that. And so, you know, started working with Kid Robot from day one on that. And then, and it was a huge explosion for four or five years of like hundreds of different toy companies came out. I worked with all of them. Established a big footprint, right? Recession put a big kibosh on that. That was kind of the transition. So it served a couple of purposes. Like I myself get tired of stuff. I also think it's good to like sort of change what you're doing every few years because that's a marketing point. It's like, oh, this guy used to be the weird punk rock guy from Texas. Now he's the weird guy in San Francisco doing these toys in Japan. Like, well, you never get super famous, right? It's you kind of consistently ahead of the curve and you're proving, because there's ageism in art and design, okay? I know a lot of people that they only did one thing and once they aged out and they were stuck with that collector group or that fan base, well, they're fucked. I was like, how can I stay valid? Because, whoa, this is a great way to make a living. I can sit on my ass and draw stuff and get paid. You mentioned the trip to Japan and the vinyl toys. And the vinyl toy that you saw that fascinated you was Hello Kitty. No, no. I, I had already been collecting Japanese toys. What this was, it looked punk rock, okay? It was a manufactured item, right, to the qualities of manufacture. But... The toy itself was a weird, fucked up punk rock version of an old Captain Crunch character. So I was super attracted because A, it was a toy and it was weird. B, it was a weird pop culture mashup and it looked real punk rock. It's black and white, mean, it's a punk rock looking thing. It's called the, you can look it up online. It's called the Kid Hunter by Bounty Hunter. And I was like, wow, this is a really interesting item. This is a really interesting thing. What the fuck is this, right? It triggered all this stuff. Because the early days of the toy scene were kind of very punk, actually, in a weird way, as far as the sensibility and how it was all DIY and all this stuff. So I just, it just felt right. And I was like, this is super interesting. I understand this. I want to do this. Because a lot of times it's like, I want to be able to do it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I will look at other people's work and go, fuck, I want to do it. And I want to make a bigger splash. That's what it was with the posters. I want to do crazy posters for local bands that were better than the posters from the record label. So you're a maker, but you also had a competitive nature of bigger, better, bigger splash. 
yeah, I want to, you know, I want to do this. I can do something that's more interesting. I can do that. It goes back to wanting to be a participant and not just a consumer, right? And so everybody knows when you say, I want to do this, you just raise the middle finger just so that the listener can enjoy. Right. Sometimes, sometimes I do it well. Sometimes it's stale and derivative, you know, it's all over the place. But at least, you know, for me, the interest is in doing it, right? I also like enjoy sort of like access to new technology, you know, because it used to be like, hey, man, you have a Xerox machine. Then I had a press. These days, I have a team of sculptors and like all this digital tech, you know, it's great, right? So I love the technology aspect of it because while I don't get super nerdy and can't really tell you how it all works, like I know how to use it to do what I want, right? Or to pay someone else to use it, to stay fast, stay current, to make it easy for clients to produce, you know, doing stuff. So I really like making things happen in a weird way. And I'm not really chasing a masterpiece, any, any job. So it makes it a lot easier to do a lot because, you know, it's always sort of a good enough thing. So my approach is really different probably than most creative people you're going to talk to. Not a perfectionist. I am obsessive, but I just want to like get as many ideas out there as I can in the areas that interest me. So I've had a really weird career. I probably could have had a much more financially rewarding career earlier if I had to really focus. These days I'm fine. I've, you know, cumulatively it's been great. So for me, it's like I, I exist in this weird netherworld where I want to get paid for everything because I remember being really fucking broke and it sucked. So I am greedy. Like I don't do anything for free, right? If I do new stuff, it eventually gets folded into like something that sells. So I might spend a year spending money on materials and supplies to try to figure out resin casting. But then once I figured out there's a plan to make money off of it, right? It's kind of odd. Like I, you know, my, what I do is not precious. It's not art. It's like, I, I, I'm like a, in Japan, they have a word that's kind of untranslatable where you're a producer in the sense of not like you are a movie producer or something like that. You just like, are a, I guess our word would be maker, right? I just make all this shit. So I guess I can control my destiny, right? Looping back to unstable childhoods. So and my thing is, I like to have fun with it. I like to make fun of myself. I like to fuck with it. I'm not super uptight about anything. I'm like been really, and it's a formula that seems to work really well for me. You know, I've done thousands and thousands of thousands of completed projects with like a minimum of stress over the years. There's not a big emotional maelstrom behind any of it. From my assessment, from what I can see, and it's not psychological, but I see you have a, a nice, you have a dark sense of humor. You sort of an edgy, rebellious approach to things a little controversial and some some ways unsettling, but you have the ability to express yourself through this life you've designed yourself. Yeah, because I mean, everything I do, even if it's super mundane, there is a story I'm trying to get across to somebody. Now, sometimes the story is buy this thing because it will make you a cooler person if you buy it. Sometimes the story is you have like 10 seconds to see this poster in a window as you're driving past and you have to imprint, like there's a Melvin show Sometimes I'm making a weird convoluted joke on one to five levels about some totally asinine thing that me and four other people know about. That's the story. So there is storytelling involved, but it's not the kind of storytelling where there's a valley full of these wonderful creatures. You know, it's not that kind of a story, right? They're all like single panel gag cartoons in a way. So apparently I've gotten pretty good at that. And that has a lot of applications, both in the creative art side of things and the consumer side of things. Because if you can tell a story 
then you can reach whatever your market, whether it's like, okay, here's this cool thought I had about like the nature of reality to like, this is why you should buy this toothpaste from doing, you know, all the commercial work. And then, you know, I put the art ideas into the commercial work and I put the commercial sensibilities into the fine art stuff. And that crossover seems to actually bolster each side, not detract. I mean, I've done shit in one week. I did like a major ad campaign for Nike, the most commercial thing ever. And then I did the back cover of this really disturbing, fucked up punk rock magazine called Answer Me. So, and then neither side cared. Like, it wasn't like the Nike gig killed my cred with the weird fucked up art people or working with the art people fucked up my cred with Nike. It sort of reinforces it all, which is not the message that American art schools put out, which is weird. No, it certainly doesn't. But just to sort of spin off your storytelling comment, you are a storyteller down to your skin. You design your own tattoos that people who don't know you, you've got a, a great deal of tattoos. And I always think of tattoos a little bit like charms on a charm bracelet. Like everyone has a story. I wonder how difficult that is when your body is your canvas, when you're designing your own work there. The way it was works for me with tattoos is I'm like, I want to, I want a tattoo. And then like, and then I start thinking about like a fantasy of what this tattoo would look like. And if I can't sort of stop thinking about it and like going in front of the mirror and drawing on my arm, then I know like I should get that tattoo no matter what it is, right? For me, the tattoo process is not an intellectual process. It's an emotional, physical thing. It's like hunger. It's like appeasing hunger. It's something that is a really primal territorial thing when you're naked and exposed you want the other to know what they're dealing with to me you're imprinting your story in some ways to to expose the reality of who you are but it's not intellectual it's not like you're thinking you know it's like it is just like i can't stop thinking about having a spider on my arm here i can't stop thinking about i want that i want to convey that. And if you can't stop thinking about it for a while, you should get that tattoo. I'm going to just change the subject a little. It'll tie back to literature because I know you have a few. Uh, Moby Dick was among your favorite. I'm a big reader. Yeah, big reader. Yeah. The Moby Dick story is something that you found important enough to do an imprinting of something that came from that of one of your tattoos. Well, you know, there's only so many stories, right? And it's hard to uh, fully realize a version of one of the basic stories that's like sort of like weird enough in the context of its time and the context of like now, right? Because, you know, I feel that when you read, you should understand the context of when the piece was written because that has one meaning. And then you should understand the context of like what that piece might mean now. And it's that combination combined with your own fantasies and thoughts and knowledge of the world that allow you to formulate a response to the story. And Moby Dick is actually this really insane book because half of it is like a moralistic Christian fable, right? And the other half is like oceanography. It's like this in-depth biological study of the whale and all these other weird interconnections. And it was written by this guy that spent his days sitting in a customs house, like filling out ledgers. Okay, and he would go home and write it at night based on his early experiences when he went to sea as a merchant seaman. And it met with great failure when it was published. And it took a while for people to understand like this insane thing this guy had actually done, right? His other books are okay, but you know, nothing hits 
the weird shit in Moby Dick and like the and he all he did was take primal stuff. Um, he did it in in a, in language in a, in a way that he made it this amazing like mental experience. If you care about things like that, so Moby Dick became a really important thing to me. I've read it a lot of times over the years, and I, I find a great power in the, referencing the work, even if nobody cares. So I do have like all these Moby Dick callouts in my tattoos, for example. Right, I've got the traditional sort of like romantic navy girl, but. You know, the ship is the Pequod, shit like that. And that's completely personal to me. And this is probably the first time I've explained that in 15 years. So literature has affected me a lot because I was kind of an isolated kid when I lived in Europe. And when I came to the States, I had a kind of a double life. I had to sort of live this like normal blue collar kind of life, but I still had an interior intellectual life that I didn't care for sharing. So reading was always a big retreat from me. And, you know, I've read a lot of books. Everybody has interior landscape. But yeah, literature has been really, really important to me. But I've never really circulated in those kind of circles where people have read or care about literature. So it's something I've always kept pretty private. And I will put references in the work to it, but those are always private jokes for myself. I don't expect anybody to get them or care or anything like that. That's just purely for myself to reinforce my fantasy of who I want to be because I had to create myself, you know, because I don't really come from anywhere. I don't have any kind of family or connections going, you know, like I immigrated here in the mid seventies as a young teenager and like, you know, lived in my car for a while and went in the middle, you know, drifted for many years. Right. So a lot of this stuff is, the story I tell myself to make me feel like I have some continuity goes back to the control thing. I'm being super honest about my work right now, as weird as this might sound. I, I totally appreciate your honesty. And in that early days, in your youth, you were drawing map drawing or color pencil drawing of maps or something. Was that? Yeah, super obsessed. I, when I was a little kid, uh, there was a giant old atlas in the house. And of beautiful plates and so i would spend hours and hours like copying all the topographical so i think actually like when i was a little kid copying those maps and colored pencils i think that uh, actually led to me having a good sense for pattern and color i mean a lot of times i'll plan out the colors before i do the illustration so i do credit that early childhood activity with giving me some training in color and pattern at what point did you begin to develop your own style, your own visual voice? Personally, I've tried to not have a style. I mean, but, you know, you have limitations to what you can do. And I guess, you know, style is actually the result of your limitations. I can work pretty fluidly in several different styles. So I guess, you know, probably I'd say I didn't get good at, like, drawing until maybe, like, four or five years ago. Really? Uh, now I'm getting to where most of the things I draw look kind of the way I want them to do, but I'm still trying to learn I've overheard in a Clubhouse conversation, which is a social app, that when other folks say that they have problems with facing a blank page or running of ideas, that you, conversely, have so much creativity and abundance of creativity. I'd love to hear your point of view on the curse of creativity that might either keep you up at night or having too many ideas. Can you kind of share with me a little bit about your perspective on that? Yeah, the frustration is, for me, it's like I get jealous. The curse of creativity is, number one, is you're going to suffer from imposter syndrome. If you don't have imposter syndrome, you're not a creative, right? Because creativity is all about control. And if you ever do get complete control, then you're dead. So that's one thing, okay? Number two is, yeah, like I could sit down today and probably spend the next year writing a list of all the stuff 
I want to do and all the ideas I have for stuff. There's this thing, it might be apocryphal, but there's a story that in the, like, the days of one of the major Chinese dynasties, whatever it might have been, you know, the test for being a civil servant was to sit down, they would sit you down in a room and they would just go write down everything you know. And if it was a, a week later or a year later, you turned this shit in and they would look at it and according to how much you knew that checked out, the higher rank you were awarded at the beginning. I think about that a lot. You know, like what it would be like to actually fucking sit down in a room and write down every fucking thing that you know. For me, it would be, I would be here for like, you know, a million years probably. Right? That's what the ideas for creativity are like for me. People are like, wow, man, you work really fast. You do so many projects. How can you do like, you know, 400 projects a year, which is kind of like the going rate these days. And it's just like, because they're already done. There's already a fucking thing, a category, a card in a file in my head to suit any possible fucking thing that comes down the road. So I've been really good at, turns out I'm really good at being like a creative officer because I can just sit there and make like 20 decisions every fucking day and all the products happen and everybody's happy because they don't got to deal with it, right? So like, you know, not only do I do my work, but I run a company. Right. And are you overseeing other artists and production? Everything. I oversee other artists, every phase of production. You know, it's all software, but, you know, these days I make 200 decisions that actually have financial or aesthetic impact, right? And people are like mind boggled and they pay me all this money to do it. But to me, it's like, yeah, I already know how this all works. So this is just like, you know, ordering a, off of a menu for me, right? It's a hard, like, I know it should be this color. I know that should, you know, I just, from, I guess, all the experience and all the thinking about it. So while I'm not a huge genius creating fantastical worlds and writing novels, I'm pretty good success rate at knowing what shit should look like to work. And so that's what I focus on. Great. So let's talk about that for a minute, because I did notice in some of your new products, there's pop culture references or there what looks like might have to be licenses with SpongeBob or some of these other characters. So it's all real. It's all working with the licensors and getting them to agree to do odd things. And it's a category that is we've been pushing hard at and actually the licenses are starting to realize like, hey, we make money off this stuff. People have been bootlegging us for years. Now we can kind of effectively bootleg ourselves and make the income. Okay, we trust you to do it. So it's a great solution because the people that want art, well, you know, you're getting your weird art take with an artist on, you know, somebody else's bigger intellectual property. But at the same time, it's completely legal and the original creator is getting their due too, right? You're not stealing from anybody. It's a really great solution to merge art and commerce in a graceful way where everybody wins, right? Because it doesn't happen without the IP holder approving it. So it's not like we're degrading their stuff against their wishes. They're like, oh, yeah, this is fun. Let's do this, right? Yeah, well, I think that's great. And I guess I would ask your advice to a newcomer that's looking for a situation, a collaborative situation, because... I looked at, I guess, do you pronounce it bunny? Is it with the B-H-U-N-N-Y? That... So that's our range of things that are, they're sort of meant to go head to head with Funko stuff. Right. But they're a little less formulaic than the Funko Right. Stuff. And so there's Gizmo from Gremlins and Pennywise from um, It and Bob Ross and Red Rum and all kinds of fun things. There's been nods in your work for a long time to other characters in the bust work that you do i can see the humor in your work and i can also see the push against so many things that are corporate or that are 
political in some ways. I guess that's the reason I imagine a person wants to have a Ho Chi Minh pink sculpture on their coffee table is that it's it's telling a story for them. I mean, I learned this early, like with the punk rock work. It's really easy to do stuff that's like super atavistic and, you know, shock value, offend someone. And I never like to do that too much. My whole thing is I, I want to make people think a little bit, just a tiny bit, right? And whether pro or con doesn't matter as long as they will stop and think about it for a second. So if you look at a lot of my posters, some of them do have some pretty fucked up stories, but I like to try to be a little bit more clever and do it by inference. I like to show like just before it happens or just kind of after something happened, right? And then people will be, a, they'll stop for a second and go, what's actually going on here? Then they'll kind of get it and then they'll make a fantasy up in their head that's way more fucking weird and satisfying than anything I could actually ever draw, right? Because then their own morbid imagination or whatever or sense of play comes into effect and then it's an effective advertisement for whatever it is to show that you know that draws somebody into the thing stops them for a minute huh and then chances are they'll remember that longer than the other 50 ads they saw on that walk or that drive so i think there's a lot of power in inferring the story or the situation rather than just showing it and a lot of the toys are even kind of ambiguous because they're designed to sort of be more of a mirror of your, like the rabbit, the really successful one, the rabbit, right? It just blank enough to mean anything you want it to mean. Like it has a meaning for me, but it's going to have a different meaning for a lot of other people too. And that's why it doesn't have a name. Like it'll never have a proper name, right? They're just rabbits. They don't have names. They're just what they are. They're different colors and stuff, but... That was my fascination with Hello Kitty, right? Like, it was like this perfect thing. Like, Hello Kitty is whatever you want her to be. And so, like, man, I want to create a character to that level of, like, perfection, right? Like, to me, that's like a perfect thing. Like, creating a perfect symbol that will be used for a long time. And people won't even, even know what the original meaning of it was. They just, that just became a symbol, okay? And the Labbit, even though it's not nearly as big as that stuff, has been that thing like that thing has been selling and selling and selling for 25 years now and what's interesting is that people send me mail here i am with my labbit at the south pole or on top of the eiffel tower we had a labbit themed wedding there's lots of teachers that use a labbit as the reward when the kid gives a good answer it gets to have the labbit on the desk and at the end of the year the class they all drew a labbit and made a little book and sent it to like weird shit like you know it's awesome right so it's like cool like that worked i created something that like it has meaning to people in their daily life because it's just undefined enough to let them fill in the blanks so this goes back to the inference thing like i don't like to tell like this is the story of a man named jed you know it's like no here's this thing that i find interesting and i can build stories in my head off of and here's here's one for you too so if there's anything I was looking for in all of my art, other than just self-gratification, like, oh, cool, I can draw that now. It was the fact to be able to do something which I think is important as perfect as is like a Hello Kitty type of thing or an ampersand symbol or thing. like something that actually becomes a daily part of people's lives. Yeah. And you make a mark on the world that people as a mirror reflect themselves into, I guess. That's fascinating. Your journey from Spain to America and your 
journey through punk rock and with having a music label and working in toy design to be your own explorer, always partnering with new technologies and other people. And it reminds me of a Ann Rand said something about the question isn't who's going to let me, it's who's going to stop me. So my rebuttal is unlike Ann Rand, I make sure that both sides in a relationship benefit equally. The thing that I find funny in your being a art and toy designer is that you have a zero tolerance policy on toy characters in your home environment. It's just not a gentlemanly thing to do. I, I can't wear my own stuff. I mean, you know, I'll shill when it's appropriate, but I think that like, you know, walking around with your own shit 24 hours a day is just fucking corny, dude. You know, like, like I make this stuff I don't want to look at. I like other people's stuff. I have other people's stuff up. You know, I had the big symbolic studio downtown and, I'm, you know, I'd have all this shit up naturally because, you know, you need the honey trap when the clients come in kind of a thing. But now that that phase is done and I'm in the sort of like just get to sit by the pool all day and do whatever the fuck I want to, to do artwork phase, which I'm super lucky to be in, right? Just I can just work out of the downstairs of my house and do it all due to technology in part, right? You know, the whole company's remote now. We're all remote permanently. It's great. Everyone's so much happier. Also, I found that, like, when I had my stuff up on the walls, the new stuff looked a lot of like the stuff I had on the walls. So I think if you surround yourself with the, your own stuff, you'll get in a rut a lot, I think. I think it's better to surround yourself with other stuff that is a challenge that you can't or didn't do. To me, that's more useful. It's funny. With toys i because i wrote plays about nostalgia and oftentimes the set were littered with toys my kids got confused because i would say don't touch that that's not a toy that's for daddy's work nostalgia is weird you know i've gone through periods of nostalgia but for people that i never was like i actually would put together collections like okay i'm like this dude that did this like went to korea in the war and all this stuff, and like this is like my Korean War veteran collection, like like because that makes I, I did actually it was like World War One, like so it's like you know I went I would survive World War One, and this is like my World War One in the trenches, like weird like what is that about nostalgic where you're actually nostalgic for something that you never experienced, right? I, I catch myself doing that sometimes. Maybe that's like a trying to build an escape pod. Yeah, well, I think you probably awareness, as I do, regarding nostalgia is that after a certain period of time, it really becomes valuable to somebody, that it becomes important for them to connect to that past time or that feeling or that recipe, whatever that small thing is. And if you can, it's almost like having a time machine that you're able to transport them to that moment emotionally. Well, before we wrap up, I just guess I want to talk about you being a self-taught guy. I mean, I think I do have an eye, right? I can take whatever random objects and make a nice design and take a picture and it looks like something like that. That's just, I think, where I'm lucky. I have a natural instinct for that, right? Arranging things. Um, other than that, it's all self-taught. As a kid, copying out of comics. As an adult, copying out of comics. Collecting things, trying to mimic a style. Slowly figuring out how they did it, how to use materials. What I would do for a long time, I mean, I still kind of do it. It's like, oh, you know, like I want to do these big, I saw a big silkscreen poster. How do I do that? So I got the job at the silkscreen place and learned how to do it for production. And then 
okay, cool. Now I know how to do all that. Stop working there and went and bought my own shit and like started creating my own stuff. So I've always done that every step of the way. There are some technology losses that suck. Like for example, like they no longer have analog stat cameras or, or optical lens Xerox machines. So you can't really get real analog moray patterns and stuff anymore for graphics. That's why new punk rock looking newsprint stuff doesn't really have the feeling that the old stuff has because you're not seeing the true randomness. But my whole thing was like, as time evolved, I wanted to keep up. I mean, I went from, you know, painting on cell cell vinyl on the back of transparencies and sending it to magazines to now doing it all digital, right? I went from working at a letterpress to we have 3D printers now, right, and digital sculpting. So I think that if you want to keep current and also if you want to make money, because you've got to deliver usable work to a client, or the, even if that client's yourself. Well, I can't just like do a painting and mail it in a tube to somebody anymore. Like they're going to expect like a print ready file. So I've always kept up with technology because I want to be able to provide full service for the client. But with every exposure to technology, you learn something new. And then that gives you ideas how to like take that technology and do something different with it for a different effect. So I've always been a big fan of change that way. And I think what it's led to is the fact that like today... I am making like with, okay, let's say, you know, the merchandise and the stuff I sell, I make multi-generational sales. Like I will sell to granddad or grandma, which is my age. They buy the stuff that looks like the old rock posters. Uh, their son or daughter who's like in their 40s or 30s, they're buying kind of like the record label stuff into the toy kind of stuff, right? Uh, the grandkids are buying kind of like... Mm, what was cool like in the toy scene a few years ago and in like in some cases the great grandkids are buying the new little plush toys so i'm able to sell to three to four generations of a family yeah loyalty in family units that is a tribute to you for designing uh, amazing artwork posters toys experiences and stories and in fact designing a life to go with it that is creative and provocative and rebellious. I think a lot of artists have a problem valuing their art or putting a price tag on it. What do you advise to any of your... How much do you want to make an hour? That's I, Everything for me is an hourly rate or a day rate. Uh, gauged against like how bad do they want it, I might bump it. So the thing is I have... I have no maximums and I've been paid surprisingly large amounts of money for shit. But I always tell people like, here's the deal, man. You want to eat, you want to pay your bills, you want to have a house, a car. What is that going to cost you to do? Like you got to make that plus some because you got to pay your taxes too, right? And have fun. So, you know, the minute you start getting to be uh, someone who gets paid, you need to set a rate card. You just have to. And it's, yeah, it's weird how many people won't do that because they're scared I found that I've gotten way more yeses than noes. I asked for more, too much. And most of the time, they're like, okay. You know, why not, right? Who wants to get paid less? I don't understand. There's this weird, I don't know where it came from. There, there's this weird romantic myth in, in, it's primarily in the States, a little bit in Europe, not at all in Asia, that like, if you're a real artist, you have to suffer. You have to be poor and hungry. And you just got to be this like, you know, mess in the attic creating this great work. That's like a myth. Like, the more of a support system and a comfort zone you achieve, the better your work is going to be. And some clients are going to pay you more than others. And, you know, it's awesome to take the money. So. But I also find that a no, when somebody says no to an amount, I always look at as now they know how much I charge. Because the next time they call, they don't negotiate. They go, well, we know you're this much. 
it took me a long time to learn to say no to stuff I really didn't want to do or knew that I just shouldn't have been doing. The fears there always like, oh, this is the last job I'll ever get, you know. But I've been super lucky that way. I mean, that's one reason why I got really invested in the business side of things. I'm an artist, but I also publish other artists, right? So it's like, it's kind of like being a stockbroker. Client makes money, you make money. The client loses money, you make money. I learned that early on after getting like savagely fucked over on some deals that, you know, I should be, should be doing my own, you know, doing it for myself. And that's become a lifelong pattern, you know. To me, that's the goal is to live, you know, the sort of the live by my wits successfully. I'm grateful for your time today to share some of that with us. And I think your legacy will live on because all of this stuff is eminently makes us feel something. You know, it's nice to hear. It's You know, it's nice to have a reaction. So. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.